I just want to say thank you, and I'm grateful to you for listening and supporting this podcast, and also to my producer, Liz Egan, who has more than her hands full sometimes in working with this audio. I believe in working live, face-to-face, even in a time of COVID and with masks and restrictions, and it's so much easier to do these things over Zoom or over some sort of FaceTime or Skype. Um, But there's something to be said for meeting someone, looking them in the eyes that I don't think you can get in those kind of in-studio interviews, um, no matter how well mic'd they are. And what that means is the audio is messy. Um, We're sitting on the porch on this house off of Central Avenue. There's traffic noise. There's, you know, leaf blowers and uh, would it be nice if we were sitting in the Garden of Eden? Sure. But Liz does uh, a wonderful job of doing her best to clean up our audio. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Liz Egan and Brian Baltashevitz and the folks at the Queen City Podcast Network. Now the show. But if we are truly going to help people to have a life that they want, it goes deeper than love, and that is value. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi, I am Stuart Watson, and this is Man Listening, and I appreciate you being here and for listening. Shireen Carrico, I believe I met in passing, so active and so inspiring in the world of mental health, not just in fighting mental illness, but actually in promoting joy and gratitude and peace and love and wholeness um, through founding something called the Promise Resource Network, PRN, which I've seen in its old location and now in its new incarnation on the plaza in Charlotte, North Carolina. And she's also a very good friend of my friend, Joe Kuhlman, who recommended that I talk to her because her work in the area of mental health comes out of her own experience. It's her own experience, strength and hope. And it just catapulted her. And she concludes, we can all be hope inspirers. Man, do I need that message. Thank you, Shireen. Without further ado, Shireen Carrico. Where were you born? I was born on the naval base in Lake Forest, so in Chicago, and I was raised in a community called Waukegan, Illinois, so I'm a Midwest girl. I am one of two. I have one brother. He is one year and four days older than me. We are in touch. We don't have a close relationship. Um, He lives not far from me, probably 15, 20 miles from me, but we're very, very different. I, I use the example of if the Obama girls were raised in the Trump family, that would be me being raised in my family. I think it's a very good illustration. My mother is, came from a very difficult family herself, and she just wanted children. She wanted children to love. She wanted children that were her own. She wanted to be a mom. And unfortunately, she was also escaping uh, her own level of chaos and abuse in her childhood and she found my father at a fairly young age they found each other they got married when my mom was I think 19 and my father was 18 or one was 20 and one was 19 
So they were very young when they had children and both came from very difficult um, situations, found each other, really didn't have knowledge of how to raise kids. Uh, so they tried to figure it out the best that they could with us growing up. Their best wasn't great. <laughs> let's, just, let's just say that. My parents ended up divorcing probably about seven or eight years ago now. So they were married my entire childhood into adulthood. They stuck together for a very long time until neither of them could really continue doing it. So they ended up getting divorced after like 30 something, 37, 36 years of marriage. My mother describes it as a domestic violence situation. She would say to you that she is a domestic violence survivor. And I would say to you that it was a very toxic, dysfunctional relationship on both sides. And um, it worked for them for a while, but it didn't work great growing up in that household. You know, and then finally my mom decided she couldn't do it anymore. So how did you escape or find some kind of peace? Or That's a big question. You know, it's hard to, one of the things about my experience in my life is that I ended up having my entire childhood memories erased. So having memories before the age of 19, for example, is very difficult for me to just kind of recall certain things about my childhood. But there are feelings that I have in essence of what I have growing up. Part of my escape was really isolating, listening to music and really disassociating from the environment that I was in, which is what contributed to me not having childhood memories. I just went on autopilot. Um, I developed an eating disorder at a young age. I ended up receiving my first mental health diagnosis when I was around 12, 13 years old, and it was an eating disorder. And, you know, part of it was was survival, part of it was voice, part of it was turning a lot of wounds going on outside of me and my family inward and trying to cope as best as I could. Um, I ended up experiencing a lot of depression, suicide attempts. It just sort of compounded over the years into a lot of things that we now know. We call it trauma. Back then they called it mental illness. And along with the mental health diagnoses that I got, I also got a litany of prophecies, an identity that was placed on me as a mental patient, as a mentally ill person. And, you know, that's not a positive connotation. And the experience that people have of you has a tendency to be through the lens of illness. And so the experience that I developed of myself was also through the lens of illness and broken and guilt and shame. Um, and that went on for quite a while until I was able to to kind of find my voice, um, which coincidentally came during a suicide attempt where I finally, at the age of around 19, said, I, I can't continue to be sick and stuck and I'm either going to be done and end my life or I'm gonna figure out how to live it differently. Um, and that kind of was a game changer for me. My mother is Italian. My father is Native American. 
and it was a very traditional perspective on male-female relationships. And the female's job was to take care of the home and to take care of kids. And that was just kind of the script, the narrative that I grew up with. Well, I come along and I am academic, I am curious, I am open, I am creative, I am questioning, I am talking about human rights at a very young age. And that wasn't accepted, that wasn't nurtured, that was something to be, I think, feared and to be changed and to be made into illness, to be made into dysfunction. And the more, the more attempts were made to make me smaller, I was becoming smaller, I was shutting down, but I also was becoming a shell of who I was meant to be, right? And that's when the illness starts setting in. So at the same time, I have this going on in my home environment and they didn't, my parents didn't know, but I was experiencing sexual abuse at home as a child. And so when I got my first mental health diagnosis, I was going home from services and experiencing abuse. And for many years in the beginning when I got the diagnoses and they were focusing on my symptoms and my issues, they never once, the adults in my life, including the service providers, didn't look at my behavior through the lens of what's going on. You know, why would, for example, a 13-year-old child want to disappear through starvation? That's not a typical developmental thing that kids go through. And so to see that in front of you and to focus on, well, you need to eat, right? That's the issue. The issue is you're not eating. Without the curiosity and the digging in about what's going on that is making this child want to disappear. That would have been the game changer. And so though it's an example of how it's like wrestling a bear or corralling a wild horse. There are certain things about me that they saw as wild that they wanted to contain. You add on the perfect storm of abuse and a child that is very thoughtful and intense anyways. And it became this perfect storm of depression and eating disorders and self-harm and wanting to die. I spent most of my life wanting to die. And a lot of it came from this intersection of all these issues growing up. When or what intervened in this? When I was 13, my first psychiatrist said to me, I would never be able to go to college. And you know, that's a devastating thing. First of all, who's says that to a child, like you can predict the future. Secondly, that's part of what goes along with having an identity of, of a mentally ill person is the low expectations, keep things reasonable and manageable, scare tactics, there can be coercion that goes along with it. So he said I wouldn't be able to go to college. College was my out. I had nothing else but I was academic in nature. And so I figured I needed to get out as quickly as I could. I ended up going to college at the age of 16. Oh my word. Ends up being this moment, this moment of clarity. And that's what I called it, was my moment of clarity. As I stepped out into the, in front of the car, there was this quick, clear as day, and I remember it to this day, and it said this, if you don't learn how to control this, it's always gonna control you. Yes, love is a piece of it, but if we are truly gonna help people to have a life that they want, 
it goes deeper than love and that is value that I see the distress that you're experiencing right now, but I truly am invested and believe that this moment in time could be the biggest gift that you've been given. It was for me. My tragedies and my, my experiences are what led me to have a career. So there was something in the back of my mind that didn't know it you know, as strongly, but I saw it come out in my relationships with these young people. And I found myself doing things like this um, wanting to hear from them and wanting to make sure that they had a voice in what was going on around them. I was voiceless and I know what voicelessness felt like. I'm in this position to actually listen and remove some barriers to voice. When that started happening, the exchange became different and no longer became about this, oh, you're lo I love you and you're sweet and you're perfect the way that you are. It was about me seeing that inner strength in other people and saying, you have something to offer the world. How do we, how do we tap into that? How do I value you beyond you fragile, sick, mental patient you? It was what I needed, but I didn't have that. I now have the gift of seeing in other people. That has, is what has allowed me to say this in this for so long. While people come to us in some really difficult, traumatic, experiences not only do we see the wounds but we also simultaneously are able to see the strengths if we're looking and we see the possibility that every person has to use those wounds and it's it's kept me going I, I say that I used to be in the illness business when I worked in mental health systems and I did that for many many years everything was through the lens of pathology and diagnoses and symptoms and DSMs and medications and side effects that was the entire world that was created and i call that the illness business that's a business where we plant and we seed and we water and we grow illness not even intentionally but that's part of the system we've created doing recovery for a living we're in the wellness business which means that people come to us in the same distress experiencing the same things but we intentionally are growing wellness here which means that the conversations are different the connection is different. The way we support each other is different. The physical space is different. Everything about growing wellness is, could not be more different than growing illness. So when you grow wellness, it's easy to not get burnt out because you see people reclaiming their lives, honestly, on a daily basis. How do we begin to incorporate these ideas of not mental illness, but actual mental health. There was, when I first started understanding trauma and the impact of trauma on our bodies, on our nervous systems, on our neural pathways, on our worldview, on our sense of self, I had two reactions to it. One was, oh my gosh, this, this is what I was missing. The other one, and I was grateful that I finally found it. It took many years, I was in my 40s, when I finally, in a therapeutic environment, started understanding trauma. The second part of me, piece of me, got angry because I said, instead of as a kid them saying, count to 10, take a bubble bath and take a walk, which is like, you need coping skills. That's a mantra that comes up in every therapy, in every treatment, in every inpatient setting, but it's not connected to anything concrete. There was no validation of what I went through and how that was impacting my body, 
and my sense of self. So those connections were never made. For me, if I had at a young age learned things like tracking my body, feeling things, being able to feel things at, at two times, I had to learn how to, as an adult, put my hand on my leg and be able to feel my hand under my leg and my leg under my hand. You mean tactile, do I feel my pants? Yes, that is how disconnected I became from my body. And that is true of so many trauma survivors. Is in or It's almost like, the way I, I try to describe it to people is, in order for your body to be present, and because you can't escape if you're a child, you know, it's not like you can just walk out. So your body has to be present. In order for my body to stay there and be present, my mind had to disconnect. And it was the start of this disassociation between my mind and my body. And that's why I said I was kind of skating through life. I was just on autopilot because I was surviving, but I wasn't noticing the greenery, listening to the birds, hearing two things at once, hearing the traffic and being able to hear the air conditioning. I was so disconnected from everything outside of me that I wasn't even able to be fully present. We are now at young well, age. I'm hearing the traffic. Please. I know you're hearing the traffic. And I am now too, thank goodness, because that's healing for me. You know, the irony of all of it is now I feel things and I sense things and I hear things and I'm connected to multiple things at once. I can feel my body. I became so disconnected that I couldn't tell when I had to, when I was hungry. I couldn't tell that I had to pee, for example, and I would work through all of it. And by the end of the day, I'd realize I haven't gone to the bathroom and I haven't eaten. That's how disconnected. We are now starting to teach young kids how to stay connected and stay fully embodied and feel difficult things and feel them both. If we had done that, not got a mental health diagnosis, sometimes what we hear is prevention is everything. So we need to start assessing and diagnosing kids at a young age. I was diagnosed at a young age and it almost killed me. It almost killed my spirit, it almost killed my soul, and I almost killed myself as a result of being surrounded by illness messages all the time. If we do this differently with young people and talk about our connection to self and who we are and exploring those great parts of us like being wide open and creativity and being really intense and pontificating, but not doing it through the lens of something is wrong with you or something is bad with you, but who am I as a human being and how do you embrace it? We might, have, we might end up in different um, levels of health and well-being as we, as we mature as kids and into adulthood. So when I talk about prevention, I'm thinking more on that side of things. Women are every bit as more as likely to attempt suicide, but men complete mm -hmm. suicide more often. Do I have a theory? Why, why, yeah, why is that? I go back on the gender piece of it. I go back to how we're socialized. I know how girls are socialized, right? And girls, at least in my community, in my culture, being a female, I was socialized where my value was in the way that I looked. My value was in attracting boys. My value was in um, being nice and sweet and delicate and girly, like feminine, this idea of femininity. 
And what we see happen more with girls is angst is turned inward. So you see more of the eating disorders. We see more of that, that emotional distress. Boys, however, are often socialized to be tough and to hold those things in. Where boys are taught to be the breadwinner, to be the strong one. You can't show weakness as a boy. And you certainly can't be communicating your thoughts and your emotions and things like that. So I'm, I'm very curious about how we're socialized and our gender, traditional gender roles, how much that lends itself to boys feeling so much external pressure that they feel like they can't live up to, but they also don't have an outlet for. And I can't live up to it, so I might as well be out. And girls feeling that internal pressure and that internal distress and becoming more of a, you know, an identity issue and a confidence issue um, more than anything else. How do we do better about jumping over them to access this little boy and little girl might have gray hair now, but right. still the little boy is in there who needs help. Right. He just needs help and doesn't know how to ask for what it is he needs. Well, you know, that's the interesting thing to me. When we talk about suicide rates increasing, we have more public awareness campaigns right now about suicide than we have ever had. And they typically sound like this. You're important, reach out, ask for help. For people that have never been in those darkest places, there is not, I'll, I'll use my example because I don't want to characterize anybody else's example. There is such a darkness that I was surrounded by. To even be aware to ask for help, or to even be aware that I was in such a dark place that I could potentially get out of, was asking way too much of where I was at. And so part of these campaigns, they make it so incredibly simple. It sounds really easy. Call a number, ask for help. If it were that easy, we would be calling a number and asking for help. There's more sides to that and complexity. Part of it is as us as human beings is recognizing distress in another person. And sometimes when somebody can't reach out, they need somebody to reach in. Not pressure, not any of that, but it's an invitation to connect with another human being, right? I know this to my core. If there was one person around me during all of these years that I was struggling, that actually saw me, took an interest in me, was curious about me like you are today, asking intentional questions and wanting to get to know who I was, valued me enough to see me, that one thing could have been a life changer. I didn't have that. So I was very isolated. I was very alone and I was left in my own thoughts. One of the things that I say is my brain is like a circus. And the circus is really cool to go visit, but nobody wants to live in a damn circus. When you're left to your own devices and you're experiencing all this chaos and all of this trauma and having no outlet, we have a tendency to live our lives in our head. And that's what I did. If one person had recognized that and reached in to me, that would have made a difference because I was not in a place where I could reach out to them. The other piece of this, and, and this is sort of what the last, I would say five years of my own personal wellness journey has taken me, is a level of self-exploration that is really, really deep. 
as I've started to do trauma work, and I've been doing it for a number of years now, I'm learning parts of myself that I didn't know existed. It's like becoming acquainted with the entirety of who I am for the first time as an adult. And not in a pathology way, not in a way of saying, this is, you know, this is your depressed side and this is your anxious side and this is a part that doesn't want to eat, but really trying to learn, when did that come up for me? What was going on in my life? And making a relationship with those pieces of me that actually saved my life. They were the reasons why I survived. So instead of trying to get rid of them or change them or judge them, putting them in the rightful place, which is, thank you so much for allowing me to survive. Thank you for the gifts that I've been given. And now I don't need you in the same way. I still need you because you're still alerting me to danger. What's an example of one of those that you could say, thank you for your service. Now I need you to sit quietly and enjoy your retirement. Right. Well, that's it, right? So uh, there, a part of me that is, um, I would say is analysis paralysis. Ah. Right, so some super people would- smart. Super, super but smart. But on hyperdrive. All the time. At three in the morning. That's right, that part. Analyzing 12 different angles, playing chess. That's right. Four dimensions. That's exactly right. Oh, I do that. You know that experience. <laughs> One person that understands it can describe it that way. Another word for that is just anxious out of your mind. That's right, anxious out of your mind. And you know, it's, it's that double-edged sword. I can look at that now and say, what a gift. I have a gift that I can look at all these discrete pieces of a puzzle, of a macro level system, and I can put those pieces together and see the big picture. And not only can I see them, I can then strategize on how to make certain things happen. What a gift I have been given. And it's the same gift that uses me at three o'clock in the morning because turning it off can be incredibly difficult. So I can recognize it as a gift and work with this part of me that, and say, thank you so much. And I need to sleep right now, which means that you've done your job. You've got, given me all these great ideas. I have enough to figure out for the next 20 years of my life and I really appreciate it. And tomorrow, I want you to bring those gifts back to me because I'm gonna need them to be able to use them in the work that I do. But for right now, I need to rest. Okay, hot take. How do we, how do we do that without saying, here, here's some Xanax, here's some Klonopin. Yeah. Here's a, that our go-to is here, or in extreme cases, here's some Thorazine, mm -hmm. here's some Ativan. Mm -hmm. You know, without just saying, oh, we know how to shut that down. Right. This is why it's important to start the, that work at a much younger age than I started. I was given the meds, and I was like, told. What kind of meds? Everything from, I've been on everything from Effexor and Ativan to Zoloft to Trazodone. I mean, it's a cocktail of medications throughout my life and when you put that I can together, explain. It's like there's all these, there are all these cross, you know, there's all this like synergistic effect to. That's right. And we still don't know everything that these are doing to each other because That's right. guess what? People's body chemistry is different. That's exactly right. That's right. So it may numb in the short term, but when that ha when I come out of that, and I can tell that you can relate, I'm still left figuring out the same things. I'm still left with all the wounds without knowing how to heal them. 
I'm still left with all of the, you're sick, you're broke, you're the problem, without being able to critically evaluate that, not through the lens of the people that taught me that, but you know, through my own critical, intentional, deep work. And so the medications, I'm not an anti-medication person, but I'm also not a pro-medication person. I believe like everything, medications are a tool and they need to be put in the rightful place as a tool. For some people, the tool is incredibly helpful. For other people, the tool is incredibly disastrous. And what we have a tendency to do is overinflate it, put value on it and push it because we say, well, that's where you have a chemical brain imbalance. And so you need this medication to regulate your brain. We don't even have the volume of research to demonstrate that that is the truth. But what we are learning is the impact on trauma in our nervous system, in our brain functions, in the way I see the world and myself. So why are we continuing to push a tool as the answer that we know has never been a panacea for me? I'm wondering if one day we will not look at these tools like, you know, trazodone or the same as we now look at frontal lobotomies. That's right. Electroconvulsive therapy. That's right. As a very blunt yep. tool. Like they like these Stone Age people were using like blunt instruments. That's right. On the most delicate instrument of all. That's right. Trepanation. There is still a society dedicated to trepanation. We are so trepanation was developed way, way early. Um, when we started thinking we, somebody would act a certain way and we use spirituality as the explanation of the cause of their behavior. Uh, evil spirits. Evil or? spirits. And so, you know, it started out with, well, we need, to, we need to dig a hole into your skull to let the evil spirits out. This is like some leeches it's that shit. stuff it's That's it's true. purging it's it's you know purifying your blood by bleeding out well it cures mental illness but it also cures life but there are still societies dedicated to trepanation where people are now voluntarily having holes drilled into their head to now we say it's to release pressure on the brain uh, that causes depression and other mental health issues so you're right, at what point are we gonna look back and say, you know, forced sterilization, forced treatment, putting people in four hold restraints, uh, using involuntary treatment, shackling people experiencing emotional distress, over medicating them, injecting them against their will, maybe these things weren't helpful. ECT, I am so sad to say, is back on the rise. And we are seeing some hospitals in North Carolina doing forced ECT. So getting approval to force somebody into electric convulsive treatment, shock treatment, as um, their treatment for mental health issues. Um, How far have we really come? You were eventually able to find the professional help you needed. Mm -hmm. How'd you do that? It started with self-help. I turned my back on treatments because it was so harmful to me up until that point. You know, that epiphany was really epiphany of stop doing what they're telling you to do and figure out you. That's what the moral of the story was. Because these are an amazing people that are using trial and error. And their best guesses on me was making me worse. It wasn't helping, it was harming me. 
And so that was my moment of reclaiming. If you see our tagline here, it's reclaim you. It's not reclaiming you as, as the sick person or the mentally ill person or the addict. It's not reclaiming the homeless person or the felon. Those are all things that are given to us and handed to us as our identity. In order for real healing to begin, I had to figure out who I am and start unpacking all of that other stuff. It started out under self-help and I became exposed to sort of the underbelly of mental health services and treatment by working in them. The more I worked in them, the more I was reinforced, oh, that's why it didn't work for me. I see now how people are being trained to think about mental health. I was being retrained to think of it as a behavior management issue or a chemical brain imbalance or you know, on the substance use side, a, a flawed personality. Like I was trained as I became into the system professionally to start thinking those ways. I had the benefit of myself to know what the other end of that felt like and to be able to take it all in without absorbing it and becoming my paradigm. So it's almost like I went on this field trip of life and the people that, that gifted me with being a part of their life were my teachers and I was the student. And I learned more from them than I could have ever learned from other colleagues and professionals. I learned a lot about illness working in the field. And it, I understood now what was being done to me that didn't work. I learned a lot about wellness by being a student of people. And that is when it opened my door up to First of all, all treatment is not built, is not created equally. You have to know what you're walking into and make very intentional decisions about what is helpful to you right now, which might change tomorrow, right? There is a lot of different pathways of well-being. It may not come in the form of treatment. It may come in the form of gardening and meditation and yoga and drum circles, and I have to be open to exploring that. I had to start finding my voice again and using it and develop a confidence that was trained out of me from a young age when I was too much and too big and I was taught to become smaller, I had to reclaim that, I had to find that. So it didn't come in treatment for me in the beginning. It came from self-help, learning about my body, learning about my mind, exploring some of these things that I had to figure out myself and then meeting other people like me that were living amazing lives, that were saying, what do you mean you can't go to college? Where did you learn that from? Oh, that's right. You learned that from the psychiatrist that also told you, is there intervention for your eating disorder that you needed to just eat? How did that work for you? And so the more I became exposed to amazing people and learning how healing actually begins, I was able to take that on, but I was also then able to get back in this idea of, let me look at treatment. Let me look at therapy. Let me look at medications. But this time I'm in the driver's seat. I'm going to be a good steward of myself and I'm going to choose what feels right to me. That also came at a time where professionally I was able to afford it. One of my biggest angst and one of the reasons I started Promise Resource Network is because things that I have access to now as a working person with a, with a great living and access to healthcare are things that I didn't have access to when I was younger. And our community of people that experience poverty and oppression and marginalization are people that are on the fringes of the financial ability to access things like a drum circle or you know do creative expression type of work they don't have access to it we have to 
create a, uh, you know, kind of minimize that equity gap and put these types of things in the hands of the people that need it, not just the people that can afford it. And so to, to us here, we think about what needs to be completely reconstructed to actually support people experiencing distress to work through it without defaulting to confinement as the answer. And there are models out there, there are solutions out there. That's how we created the respite next door. That's how we created our 24 seven warm line. I just looked at the data this morning. As of two days ago, from the time we went into a state of lockdown, at the end of March uh, last year, we've had 12,700 callers on our warm line. Out of those 12,700 callers, we've had not, not one overdose, not one suicide attempt, not one, one, not one 911 call, and not one involuntary commitment. There are other options available if we are listening to the people that experience this every day and we are willing to be bold enough to create things that they find helpful. One of the things that makes an organization like ours unique is we have 65 people right now that work here. Of those 65 people, all of us have experienced mental health, substance use, or both. 75% of our staff have felony backgrounds, including and up to facing life or life plus five years in prison, as a couple of our team members have and have gotten out of prison. Around 30% of our team members have experienced long-term homelessness. Uh, around 25% are suicide attempt survivors. And I can go, you know, we can go on and on about the, the experience. What we find is if it were that simple, if it were as simple as getting a house and not trespassing or public urination or whatever the case may be, if it were that simple as behavior management or behavior modification, we would have a whole bunch of people walking around feeling much better and being much more well. The truth is, is this stuff is very, very complicated. And it's the question that was not asked of me when I was a child coming into systems. They looked at my behavior, behavior with starvation. Their answer was, you need to eat. And they tried everything that they could to get me to eat. Every scare tactic and every threat, every being nice, every let's educate her about nutrition. It had nothing to do with food. But they missed it because they were asking the wrong questions and they were looking for answers in the wrong doors. What we know, those of us with lived experience, is it's complex. But there is a connection that we have with one another. It's just like you identify with 12 steps. So I'm assuming then you, you identify as being in recovery from substance use, that you can connect to a person that has a similar life experience in a way that words aren't even necessarily needed. You don't have to explain it or describe it because there is a seeing of one another. We have team members here that have been diagnosed with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. We have team members here with bipolar disorder. There is an understanding that is shared when you go through similar experiences that we don't want to reduce it down to its simplest format. Just change your behavior. That doesn't work. We have to be willing to get in there with people and dig and dig through some really uncomfortable things. Um, and you're right, 12 steps are not for everybody. 12 steps are not for everybody that identifies with substance use issues. There are people that harm reduction, needle exchanges, that is their jam and that is where they find their recovery from. I'm a strong believer that in order to have a healthy community, you have to have a variety of options. And depending on where anybody's at at any given time, 
they have options available to them that feel right in that moment. Even people in 12-step that I've known that have spent years in 12-step have at times said, you know what, this isn't right for me. Now, if you listen to the indoctrination of 12-step, you might say, well, that's your stinking thinking and your disease talking. But there are other people that say, you know what, that's evolution for me. I don't want to live my life for the rest of my life seeing myself as an addict. My answer is, awesome. Whichever one of those or anywhere in between or something that's nowhere on the map, it's excellent. Let's embrace the way we are where we're at in our lives right now and it makes sure people have options if it works for you if it works for you if it works for you do it if it doesn't work for you don't do it but i'm definitely not going to know if something works for me if it's not available right you know the peer run respite is an unlocked space it is completely voluntary people keep their jobs if they're working they keep their their school if they're students they maintain relationships with loved ones they don't change they don't stop their lives to come into a mental health, emotional distress related respite because the rest of our lives, that's not, that's not reality. And we know that those are actually can be protective factors in our life. But if I don't know that this option is available, I'm not gonna know if it works for me. We honestly, the, the number of people that become well far outnumbers for us the number of people that remain sick or become sicker. I know that sounds trite. We've been doing this for 16 years. We've had not one suicide. Now we work with, at this point, a couple thousand people a month. We're not small. We've had not one suicide. We've had not one overdose with people that we are actively working with. I don't think it's, I don't think it's magic. I don't think, you know, somebody can say you guys have been very fortunate. I think we have been very fortunate. When we really establish relationships and we engage and we see people making this amount of success, there is a level of, we recover, we promise, like it's a reinforcement that we, we've all had, those of us in recovery, that people can recover. And it looks like this. Squiggly. It's squiggly, it's, it's all over the place. It's never a direct line. It's not a direct line up, but it's also not a direct line down the way we've created this belief system that, you know, you're starting here, but the only place to go from here is, is death and jail and on the streets. Why, is, why are those the only two options? That you either die or you are miraculously, what about the humanity in it, which is where the rest lives? So we find that there are these extreme examples, but they're the extreme examples. They're not, they're not the majority of the people that we work with and so maybe that's why but it's but that's always been my experience we have a tendency to go that person that one person who's hearing voices that comes at you with a knife and you don't use restraint and you don't call the police and and you know it takes that one person we create these in, entire systems and processes and procedures and belief systems around that one person or those handful of people, and then we have a tendency to miss the rest of it, which is where the majority of the people lies. You seem incredibly hopeful. Yes. You're a hopeful person. That's right. And I have 65 people that you could meet right now that work here, that one story after the next is a story of resilience and not only surviving, but thriving against every single odd. 
the people that work here are the people that were considered the exception. That one person is going to end up dying on the streets. The person that's going to end up overdosing. The person that's going to be life in prison. That person that's going to be in a shootout. And those are the people that work here. If those are the people that work here, that have turned their lives around, can you imagine the people that we see every day do it? It's remarkable. I love the wellness business. It's a much better business to be in than the illness one. If we got struck by lightning right now and all that survived is this little audio, yeah. what is your legacy? My legacy becomes the reality that people can be well. It's the hope. We have hope around us if we look for it. And if we plant and seed it, oh my God, the amount of hope that we have around us. We can all be hope inspirers. We really can. We have to choose, though, that that's where we want to be. And then it's amazing how people will become hopeful as a result. Shireen, I acknowledge and so inspired by your work. I appreciate it as well. Thank you, Shireen. You are welcome. Thank you. I am hugely grateful to Shireen Carrico for making the time to speak to me. She's super busy with you know those dozens and dozens of employees and running it and 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 she doesn't do these podcasts all the time but uh congratulations on the respite and on the next iteration of the promise resource network thank you shireen man listening is a production of unmediated llc in cooperation with the queen city podcast network and balto creative media Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported Man Listening from the very beginning. Thanks so very much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Click the subscribe button and next week you'll hear. We all wanna make schools magical for students. That's next week on Man Listening. Thanks.